Yeah, we're behind the lines here on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. We're down in Melbourne and we've caught up with Dave Karen from, uh, well, is, are you still with the BLF? Is the uh, BLF well, still a thing? I'm a retired member of the CFMEU, which was, yeah, the, the union that inherited the BLF mantle. Okay. In yeah. fact, the current State Secretary of the CFMEU was, was a BLF organiser. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right. So the worm turns. <laughs> so what was the BLF? The BLF was a, a union specifically for builders' labourers. Um, in the early days of the union movement, um, so-called unskilled workers um, uh, weren't considered part of the union movement. And, um, you know, they were basically trades-based unions. So, for instance, the ones in uh, 1856, um, in, in, in the wake of the uh, Eureka Rebellion, uh, two years after that, ones who marched off the job and, and established the first eight-hour day in the world um, were stonemasons and other tradespeople. And, um, yeah, right. You know, but the guy who sort of carried the stones around for the mason yeah. wasn't in there. Generally. And, yeah. and uh, you know, they tag along and they do all that as they did in the eight-hour day movement. But So when the builders' labourers formed, it, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I suppose it was the beginning of... A hoped-for industrial unionism, where uh, workers, uh, regardless of the work you did, were in a construction union or in an education union, or in a, depending on the on how you how you applied your how you sold your labour. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. and when did that form? So, uh, in in the in the early um, the the early part of the late part of the nineteenth century and early part of the twentieth century. Uh, unions like like ours formed, and um, uh, there, there were a lot of uh, you know workers who who did the labouring in a number of industries, uh, who who formed unions, and then amalgamation processes over the years. It was hoped would, as I say, pick people up on an industry basis. Instead, they amalgamated, but but not on an industry basis. They amalgamated based on who their you know their particular faction factional allies were in, in, in the Labor Party. Yeah, right, right. So that's sort of, that's around the time when the uh, the industrial workers of the world were getting going as well. Was there any influence on them in the Australian movement? Oh, absolutely. Or from them, sorry? Absolutely. So, well, they formed in America in 1904, which is when arbitration and conciliation was set up here. And then in uh, three, three years later in uh, 1907, that Wobblies established in Australia. So two things happened in 1907. There was the, the formation of the Wobblies. It was a fork in the road because the other thing was the Harvester Judgment. The Harvester Judgment was handed down and that said that a, a bloke, his wife and three kids um, uh, had the right to live in frugal comfort, was the expression. Frugal comfort. And in return, the bosses, the bosses received protection and... Uh, you know, tariff walls. That's uh, so. That was the social contract, and it was set up there in two, in 1907, and um, lasted, uh, you know, through to um, well, basically Fraser and then Hawke and Keating um, got rid of that social contract. That is, uh, they introduced things like casualisation. They got rid of the tariff walls. So it, it was all broken down with the advent of what we now call neoliberalism. Mm. Mm. And, uh, of course, uh, the attacks on the BLF were the way in this country, a bit like the miners in England, it was the way that 
um, that was one of the vehicles for ushering in neoliberalism. So this this period, um, was that fairly stable industrially or was there a lot going on still even then? In the... Uh, between that harvester judgment and the introduction of neoliberalism? Oh, well, of course. It, uh, it was... It was um, it was on for young and old, wasn't it? Like so, you you saw the uh, um, so so what led into that harvest adjustment um, and and the establishment uh, just before it of arbitration and conciliation were the big strikes. Uh, so from the eighteen fifties through the depression in the eighteen nineties, you had absolute turmoil. You had our movement making significant gains, gains that led the world, like with the eight hour day and then massive defeats in the 1890s where there were shooting wars going on in parts of Australia, Queensland and that sort of thing. Yeah, right. And then uh, <laughs> the liberal element within the elites, you know, the economic and cultural elites in Australia, um, they were represented by people like, um, you know, uh, um, what's his name, I think at the moment, who did the Harvest of Judgment. Um, they, you know, they were good people, basically. They were small L liberals in the best of the meaning of that word. Um, uh, they, they didn't want to see what happened in the 1890s happen again. And, uh, and so um, uh, 1905, with the, that first Russian revolution, that shook capital all around the world. Right? They were, and you look back at the debates and they, they were saying things like, these people are organising in unions, they're going to take the lot. So the liberal thing was to look at a, what they regard as a more just set of arrangements, you know, where you had unions that were state-sanctioned, registered by, by the, the state, um, to cover particular groups of workers. They would negotiate, you know, in you know, a rational and so, you know, so-called civilised way. Um, industrial courts would hand down decisions. Um, people would do their work, go home, everybody would be happy. So you didn't risk... Um, uh, the violence that were that existed in the depression years, and you didn't risk revolution. Um, I guess it's only sort of rusted on old reds like me at the time who would have taken the option with the wobblies, and uh, the bid would have looked so sane and rational to go with with the harvester judgment with that style of unionism. And uh, and then of course, but what happened then of course was was hot on the heels of 07 was was 1914 and the um, the big, the big war, the Great First War. World War, yeah. yeah. And that, uh, then you saw the Wobblies link up with, you know, the Irish community and other unions and and oppose that war, oppose the conscription um, referenda twice and, and, and win those referenda against conscription. Um, you saw all of that. You saw then Wobblies um, in the hundreds jailed, um, some of them doing lengthy stretches, 13 years and things like that, you know. Um, and then coming out of that war, you saw an absolute assault on, on the Wobblies. There was the determination to eradicate them. And, uh, but they lived on. They lived on in New South Wales uh, in the 1930s. They had, they'd called themselves something different by then, but they had more numbers than the Communist Party. So it's, it, it's a, you know, it's been part of our tradition built into the DNA, even if a lot of people don't quite know that. Mm. But, uh, you know, those things about, uh, you know, direct democracy on the job, um, militant action being very, very clear from a point of view of our values that we were the equal to any employer. We were the equal to the employing class at a minimum and that laws of countries needed to reflect that. They couldn't reflect it because the laws rested upon a, an economic system that 
had that built into it, that, that inequality. So, yeah, I mean, you had massive struggles that our union movement was involved in, coming out then into the rise of fascism and the new guard here in this country, the on-the-job struggle for to spread that eight hours, um, well, 40, 48 hours and then 44 hours to different industries. Those struggles went on right through to, to the, the next depression, before the Second World War and then the Second World War itself. Um, coming out of the Second World War, the big struggles by unions to establish um, proper housing, because there was very little housing, not, not because of the war, of course. All the emphasis had to be on fighting the fascists. So coming, uh, even during the war, there was a committee set up by government that included unions to look at post-war reconstruction. Um, and, and then, of course, that, that kicked off um, there were massive progressive attempts at creating, you know, public housing, thousands and thousands of houses, and that created jobs and helped things kick on. Um, uh, so unions were at the forefront of those blues, um, and I guess I'm mentioning the things off the job because on the job's a no-brainer. Yes, yes. You know, and, uh, off the job, the unions were, were fundamental. Well, that's an interesting point because these days, from my perspective, from the outside, it, it seems to me that the union movement as a whole has been, the scope of the union movement has been whittled down to sort of wages, hours and conditions and, mm. and constrained within that very narrow pathway mm. and they're, mm. if it's not illegal, it's very much discouraged and, and jumped upon if the unions say anything outside of that Absolutely. That little uh, corridor they've been given by the government Absolutely. and the bosses. Yes, and, and and you know when you look at the roots of that, well, really the roots of that were um, the the introduction in 1977 of 45 d &E, the secondary boycott laws, and they were first introduced in Chile um, in 73 with the, the fascist coup of Allende and uh, you know CIA supported coup. Um, uh, people like um, uh, uh, Marshall Grain from the, from the Americans um, orchestrated that coup and of course he was here in 75 to orchestrate the downfall of Whitlam. Uh, he'd helped put the Greek, Greek junta in place. Uh, he participated in the overthrow of um, Sukarno to put Suharto in place with um, nearly two million Chinese and communists being killed, butchered. Well, in, that was a massive boat. witch hunt there. Oh, and this bloke, he was in each one. Um, so uh, they introduced that 45 DNE, the secondary boycott laws, into Chile, and that was the proving ground for the secondary boycott laws. So what, then, what are the secondary boycott laws? Well, so if you and me set up a picket, yep. um, uh, we, can't, we can't stop uh, a second or a third or a fourth employer from doing business with the first one. Any effect we have on them at all, we can be punished for that. Employers, on the other hand, um, solidarity between each other during a dispute is fostered. It's it's not only legally it's not only legal it's it's actually fostered. They are, they are advised to to trade on when they're in dispute, which is the equivalent of a secondary boycott against us. They they are, they are advised to employ scabs, a secondary workforce they're called in the in the ILO conventions. Um, and just on that, under the ILO conventions, which we're a signatory to, when a government has secondary boycott laws, they're meant to have no secondary workforce. Hmm. Well, they never picked up the second part. They only ever picked up the first. Yeah. So what's, what's the ILO? Just so the, the um, International Labour Organisation, which is you know, a UN body, um, 
that deals with labour and labour yeah, rights all over the world. Yeah. You know, it's sort of it's sort of bottom line stuff, yeah. but very important. And uh, so, when forty five D and E came in in seventy seven, um, uh, Hawke uh, uh, colluded in in uh, it it being put in place. He colluded with Fraser on that, and then um, when he won power in eighty three, he actually used it. He used it against unions, um, him and Keating, and. Um, uh, you know, unions were charged under 45 DNA and fined and sued. And, and then uh, you mentioned the word corralling. Well, that's exactly what happened. The, from 77 onwards, we saw the introduction of, you know, more and more restrictive corralling of unions and their rights to, to, to the point where, um, under Keating, we finally saw it get introduced where you can only show solidarity between each other at the enterprise level. Uh, and even if we're in the same union, one enterprise can't show solidarity with the other. It's illegal. Whereas the employer, they're encouraged to show solidarity with each other and win the dispute. I mean, um, you know... That makes it very difficult to function effectively. Well, exactly, and that's that's precisely what it was for. So the employer can set um, the price and conditions of sale on the goods that they sell. We have no power over that. But we can't set the price and conditions of sale on what we sell, our, our labour, our work. Yeah, at a, at a, and beyond a certain point, us trying to set that price becomes illegal. And uh, all sorts of authorities and powers are set up to intervene and stop us um, uh, trying to determine the price and conditions of sale for the things we sell. Mm. Um, for the employer, only, only the market dictates for them what their price can be. Are the goods good enough? Uh, is the quality good enough? Are the warranties long enough? All those things will determine how much they can sell for. We can't do that. It's mm. illegal beyond a certain point. Well, that's interesting. What is it that the labourer sells to the boss? So the, the labourer sells labour power, sells work. And, uh, and, of course, work is the basis for all wealth. Um, uh, no dollar bill ever grew legs and went out and built a building. And, uh, you know, no dollar bill ever sat in an office all day and, and, and you know, inputted data. Um, you know, it's only work that does that. It's labour. Mm. Um, people say, yes, but I invested. Well, where did the money that you invested come from? It came from labour. They say, well, I have assets, I have machines. Well, how did you get the machines? You did it off the back of the labour that you employed so that you could... Or you borrowed money. If you borrowed money, how did that money come about? No matter how you look at it, unless a person turns up naked, uh, walks everywhere, never has leave, has no superannuation, doesn't get paid, right? has to figure out how they're going to eat some other way, well then they've got to accept that it's organised labour who made all that. And I say organised labour, so not just work, but it's those of us in the movement that created wealth. Because not just enough to go to work and create wealth, there's got to be a capacity within those who work to be able to share that wealth, to be able to dispense with that wealth in ways that are for the betterment of the society we live in. And that's what organised labour did. Yeah, and I guess the, the build-up of that sort of work and, and knowledge as well, and that the accumulated knowledge of humanity has, has been building up over years. There's a guy in the States, Gar L. Perovitz, who right. he did all the sums, yeah. and he reckons that of all the business going on right at this moment... The amount of wealth that that will create is some infinitesimal percentage of all the wealth that we've just inherited from the past. Yes. 
That's and, a really uh, valid point. A really valid point. And, yeah. um, you know, you want to look at that in minuscule at the moment. A good example of it here in this country would be our super. Mm. You know, um, more than $2.6 trillion now. And um, midway next year, it'll be 2.7. And um, six months after that, it'll be 2.8 trillion. Like, mm. that's, you know, that's just a small part of, of, of you know, the nine and then the 12% that we workers set aside out of our wage that we'd already paid um, since it was introduced. So uh, imagine if all the wealth we created could be allocated um, by the majority um, in the interests of the, the majority. So, in other words, so who has control of that massive tank of money? Well, it's a, a really interesting question because um, the way it's regarded might t- give you the answer. They still speak about... Um, superannuation as private capital. So the funds and the fund managers determine where our collective socialised capital goes. And it's going into wood chipping, it's going into war. You know, the, the massive war machine. I mean, last year, the, the economic impact of, of the, 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 the military industry on the globe was $14.76 trillion. So by far the largest industry in the world, and our super is caught up in it all. Um, killing our brothers and sisters overseas to get a return on the investment. Well, come on, we've got to be better than this. You know, this, that's, that's fascism, isn't it? It's corporatism. So most workers don't even know that. Um, are there options for where our super could go? Yes, and we've been on about it for 21 years now in Earthworker, and we'll continue f- pushing this. That um, As the factories are set up that are in the hands of the people, um, and the other workplaces that are cooperativised, like red gum, um, cleaning co-op, etc. Um, more and more, we want to increase that pole of attraction for socialised capital, for super and the credit unions and the cooperative banks, and getting behind the social sector, build that social sector out, because capitalism, left to its own designs, it doesn't have the flexibility. It's too constrained by the market. We need a, a freed up, uh, socialised capital that can invest in the things we actually need. So to, um, to, to build jobs around um, halting the assault on the life support systems of the planet and then to look at the sort of economics we need that are consistent with and actually part of the life support systems of the planet. That's what we need. And, and we need our socialised capital to get in behind all of that. And that's, that's hundreds of thousands of jobs for 100 years minimum. Now, um, capitalism can't do it. Capitalism is caught up in creating the quandary we're in. And it's, it's, it's in a sense, I'm not being personally critical. I'm just saying it's like, it, it, it's a bit like criticising the tiger who's hungry. If you go in the jungle, he's going to eat you. That's what he's got to do. You're running around in the lunchbox. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and remember, you're naked because you don't know. Because <laughs> you don't know where you come from. Um, and, and the thing is, of course, he's going to send you and he's going to track you down and he's going to eat you. Now, that's what capitalism's like. It's, it's, you know, it's silly to expect things like social welfare and, you know, the welfare state. And that didn't come from capitalism. That came from the fact that for a little while there was a competitive capitalism, um, you know, where the state owned and controlled capital in countries like the Soviet Union, etc. So um, for a while you had the human face of capitalism in countries like Denmark and the Scandinavian countries, right down through to the colonised countries in Latin America, Africa, etc. You know, capitalism wasn't as bad as it could have been. And we're starting to get a bit of an idea now how bad it can be when it, you know, when it's left to its own designs. So... 
How do we fix that? Well, you know, only a union movement that has other economic options. A union movement where we are not just, again, we're not constrained by by having the only life we live, standing on the gate, boxing on with capital. We've actually got to step up and create our own, um, you know, our, our own models uh, that, are, that are democratic, that involve an economic democracy. Now, we can do it. We've got the socialised capital to do it. We've got to have the blue about getting control, democratic control, over that capital and as quick as we can getting it into... And, and that will be one of the big tasks ahead for unions. So now that the Maritime Union of Australia have adopted Earthworker, the Earthworker Cooperative Strategy, um, that's the first key union to do it, um, you, you can see a light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, I'm just hoping that happens before I slip off the planet, but, you know, I, I think this, the track, the track is, is being laid and um, the more unions that sign up into that, well, what have we got then? Well, then we've got us playing the traditional role of fighting capital, whether they're private or public employers, um, for workers' rights and the voice of democracy within the economy. That's the role of us as unions. And we've done it sometimes better than others um, for, for a long time now. With the change the rules strategy, I mean, unions are wanting to fight back and you know, build rights, things like right of entry, the right to strike, all that back into our, our practice. But parallel with that, if we're not, you know, as I say, if we're not just on the gate boxing on with the boss for what they do or don't do, but over here we're doing our own stuff as well and setting the pace, the benchmarks, you know, where your workers' co-ops don't just provide a wage for worker owners, they, they provide housing, they provide childcare, they provide education, health. We make sure that where there are holes in the system on those areas, the, the cooperative sector, the social sector, provides for that. So you're saying that the co-op has a structure where the wealth that's created through the work that's done is in the democratic control of the people who do the work. Absolutely. And so then they can spend that wealth on filling those gaps that might be left in a, in a system where it's all extracted. That's right. Exactly right. And, and you know, um, that's the idea. In, 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 a, in, in the days where you've got large superannuation and pension funds around the world, that's socialised capital looking for a home. It needs a social sector to be able to invest in. Um, IT. IT is a technology that's looking for a home, isn't it? I mean, all this you know, nonsense about Facebook and you know, taking a photo of what you're eating and sending it around. Okay, you can play our games, but, but now the planet's demanding we get a bit serious. And it's, fortunately for us, we've got a tool there that enables you to get serious and have mass decision-making ma happen in seconds over entire industries. And... Um, and to, to work with Mother Nature in a way that before IT would have been that bit harder again. So, you know, all of these things are happening. They came out of our labour. They came out of the, the research and development that workers carry out in universities and TAFEs and on the job. And, you know, we're seeing signs of now um, breakthroughs in the commodities that we create and the capital we create, the nature of the capital we create. They're actually demanding a, a different way of doing things from us. Yeah. The, the, the very things we've created are demanding, the tools we've created are demanding that we, we move different. Yeah, yeah. so did, was this a common sort of stream of thought? Because oh, I'm going to move the, the timeline back again. Yeah. Um, was this a common sort of thought back when the unions were, were being created? And Precisely that. Yeah. Precisely that. There was that energy and that way of thinking. Because I guess it's a strategic thing. It's either fight the boss forever yeah, yeah. or just 
organised to do away with the boss entirely. Yeah, to work... To, you just don't to, have to kill them or anything. No, you just no. organise a parallel way of doing it. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, you know, of course, you, you look back at people like Marx and Bakunin and, and uh, you know, all, all of these people who helped found the workers' movement from the very beginning. Um, that's precisely the stuff they were talking about. They were, they were talking about building a, a better world, not just a bigger share of this one. And uh, that, you know... Um, when your day-to-day unionism is carried out within that framework of a better world, well then, when you are fighting the private or the public boss, because you have to, to defend the rights of workers, um, uh, you're doing that that in such a way that you've got other options that you can visibly show people you're working towards. Those factories down the road, they belong to you, mate. They're part of our movement, and we do things differently there. And, you know, with super, look, look what we could do with super. Um, because when super came in, one of the ways that left unions were convinced to go along with the idea was to look at the effect that socialised capital might have on workers' housing. And so, and it never happened. But if we take 35 years and under with kids, we put them into a house. We, we do green housing estates. We use our super to build them. They're eight star. So no bills once you're in the house. And then, you know, the worker, the unionist, never pays more than the return on the super invested for the rest of their life. They can buy it out if they want to, but it can stay in the socialised pool for their life. They never want a house. So you take that debt off a worker's shoulders and everything else becomes, um, you know, expendable. So they can spend that and in the spending, you know, provide for the services that the social sector or the goods that the manufacturing part of the social sector are providing. You know, it's not rocket science, but it also provides us with a chance to deal practically with climate emergency because we can't go on living the way we're living. So I don't mean to give the impression, and I think we do need to deal with it and face it squarely, that I don't need mean to, to give the impression that we... we we can just simply power up the market differently, use different energy sources and go on living the way we are. We, we can't. But the reality, the happy reality for us is that by shortening work, by, by um, doing with, with, with less sorts of um, uh, types of industries like advertising and, and a whole range of other wasteful and damaging industries, um, uh, you know, the creation of unhealthy plastics out of fossil fuel and by moving into other options by doing the hemp and the other um, carbon sink type farming, by, by building up the new green water grid, the new green land grid, the new green transport grid, the new green power grid, getting a superannuation in behinding it. We build it, we maintain it, we own it. Um, we can live differently. We can live in a way where we create more time and space in our lives to be with families and friends and community. Um, that was one of the original intentions of the first early union movement. It wasn't just onwards and upwards with capital. Well, what sort of what sort of hours were people working before, sort of while the union movement was getting up and running and, and, and not really effective? What, what were the hours like then? Well, you know, when it first kicked off, it, it was as much as the employer could, could get away with. People would sleep on the job. Now you're seeing that again. Around the world, you're seeing people being locked into their factories. Our fellow workers... So, you know, nothing much changes. It's, it's more what changes is who it's been done to. And, mm. um, you know, we're, we're, you, you, you look at um, 
you, you know, the, the, the more than 50 hours a week that a lot of our workers are working in construction again now. Um, and that was around about the average because you, know, you just physically, you, after that, you, you're a danger to yourself and everyone around you. you know, <laughs> like you're half cut. Yeah. So, you know, that, that, sort, of, that sort of average was why um, the issue was taken up in the first place. Um, it went to 48 and then to 44 and then to 40. Um, but, of course, with now liberalism and the breaking of all the contractual arrangements around the, you know, the frugal comfort, all that got broken. And then, you know, what we've seen is now kids working three jobs and they'll often never have enough hours to earn enough to bring in or, you know, and that, that'll be when they're working well over 40 and sometimes over 48 hours a week. Well, that's right. I mean, we're sitting in a university right now and I'm looking out over a bunch of uh, bunch of young fellas out there and lads and lasses and they're going to come out of this with a massive debt on their back. And, uh, Absolutely. And, and on the way through, they're out there delivering pizzas and working in, you know, you know, tucker shops all over the, the state. So it's, it's, there's no such thing or very rarely now that there is just a student. They're all mm. student workers, worker students, whatever you want to call them. And, you, you know, so... So I guess, yeah, look, you know, this thing about um, uh, a free capitalism is what's created all this. You know, for a time there, capitalism was constrained by the reality of revolution. And, uh, you know, that 1905 and then the 1917 revolution and then 1936 in Spain and 49 in China and 59 in Cuba and on and on, Nicaragua, El Salvador, we might have been knocked to our knees in these revolutions. We might have made our mistakes. We certainly did. I certainly have. Make, make it personal. Um, but it's probably northern Syria today. Absolutely, no no stone left upon a stone. Mm. I mean, destroying whole countries in the pursuit of profit, and, and to have your economy now motored by that, like to have an industry that big, which is motoring the global economy, and entirely dependent upon the sale of arms and munitions, and that's how we're making our quid. No, no, that's not on. So the slaughter industry. Yeah, it, 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 it is, and look, you're even seeing it. We're even seeing some unions. Unfortunately, we're seeing some unions argue for the big military contracts. They see that as a way of re-establishing manufacturing in this country. Well, no, no. You know, let, let's be clear. Um, the, 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 the 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 controlling and butchering of our brothers and sisters overseas is not a legitimate part of an economy. That's right, yeah, yeah. So how much of what they call the defence budget, do you know, is, is actually spent on protecting Australia and how much is on offensive sort of things like ducking off to Iraq or wherever the US sends us? Yeah, I, I don't know the figures on that now. Yeah. And a very my understanding from friends whose major area of work is in the military, these things are really hard to get now. Um, you know, every, like the security industry has developed both state and private to such a degree it's so hard to get information. But I do know there's a couple of hundred million um, contracts, which is penny any stuff, um, already locked in into the military industries. And if we're not careful, we'll get killed in the rush for the jobs. So we've got to create an alternative. And it's got to be seen as viable. At the moment, earth worker can't be seen that way. Only, you know, I mean, I, I don't wear rose-coloured glasses, you know. I mean, the reality of it is, though, that 
the potential is there. And we can demonstrate that now already. So where workers can take goods instead of cash, where you've got not-for-profit manufacturers, cooperative manufacturers, owned and controlled by the communities they operate in, where you can create an alternative and collective market, that, a socialised market, where workers can direct their purchase because for them and their families it means they eliminate debt, for them and their families, it means we, elim we, we begin the, the, the climate wars in earnest. Um, not waiting for governments. We've waited too, too long already. And, and to some extent, we've got to be really thankful that people also people haven't waited. They've gone ahead with photovoltaics on their roof and all those things. But we know, we know that the individual solutions to climate emergency are not the answer. It's the big grid-based solutions we need. Um, now, having said that, our factories are, are concentrating on the individual solutions at the moment because government won't act. Um, individual solar hot water, individual photovoltaics, individual battery storage, but we're already moving to a stage where, for instance, with our battery, the, 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 the battery that we've won the rights to make here, um, uh, uh, we, we've, we've already now got the, the, the built into that, the virtual power plant. So you can take your 50 batteries and you, using the, that technology, those 50 batteries can pump that power into the grid at its most vulnerable time. Great for our union members because it, it pumps in at the time when you get the best return and it means that the workers that will then pay off the batteries more and more. Now, if we apply our values to things like that, that means we can take four or five workers at a time that'll buy a $20,000 $20, really good salt sodium nickel battery. No lithium, no lead. That's a lot of money for one person to put out, but four or five people to put that out and we take that battery and we put it into container-sized storage. And we put that container-sized storage all over the state, all over the country. And one of the dreams we have, along with the Electrical Trade Union, um, is for an Indigenous Earth Worker Cooperative to hold that storage. And so we begin treaty work and we begin it in earnest, in the economy, where it really matters. Um, you know, the potential for our movement to, to move with that Earth Worker strategy um, is exponential, right? And, and it, it all involves around us winning that campaign around the right to super, for, for super, to be able to redefine the notion of maximum return. If we, if we are going to be limited by a capitalist definition of maximising return, then we are limited to, to investing in things like the military. Well, I guess it comes down really to which return you choose to accept as well. If it's merely a financial return on financial investment, that's one thing, and we've seen the results of that. But yeah. if you choose to use well-being or the the lowering of your cost of living or, or other non-monetary returns, yeah. then um, that's a different thing entirely, isn't it? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And And... And if we're looking at um, returns that involve lifelong employment, that involve, um, most importantly, dealing with the climate emergency. So we you know, actually being able to, to um, demonstrate the effect that what we're doing has upon the climate in terms of tonnage of you know, carbon that doesn't go in the atmosphere because of the measures you're taking. Um, clean water, more water, um, uh, transport off-road onto freight. I mean, to put a dollar figure on all of these things and to include that in your definition of return, 
Now, now a social sector has those definitions. We're not limited to um, the, a, a capitalist notion of, of return. It's too narrow, as I said before, and too inflexible. We need something that actually takes need, the question of need, both ours and the planet's needs, into the definition of return. Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's very important to remember that money is completely imaginary. Yes. Whereas our societies and, and the rest of nature are, are real physical things that we have to deal with. And That's right. at the moment, the economy is only dealing with the imagination. It's not uh, dealing with reality at Absolutely all. Absolutely right. Yes. Absolutely right. So, and, and Earthworker has to be remembered, came out of the green bands. So it came out of the struggles... Yeah, the Builders Labourers Federation. All right, now we're back on track. <laughs> so we've got up to about the 50s, I think, and the Builders Labourers have got together. Am I right there? Yeah, and, yeah. well, the Builders Labourers was, um, um, for part of that, being run by gangsters. Um, uh, and those, uh, some of those gangsters, uh, like in New South Wales, for instance, Jack Mundy and Joe Owens and Bobby Pringle and people like that from the Communist Party and, and uh, Bobby Pringle from the left of the Labour Party, they all got together and kicked out those um, gangsters. Um, they were organising for that in the late 60s through the early 70s. So how, how did gangsters get hold of a union and run it? Well, um, it's happened all around the world. Um, and in industries that are where you see a investment of a lot of speculation money, like so there's a lot of dirty money cleaning up, that's where you'll often find gangsters' head. It's, yeah, it's, right. Yeah. So as a form of money laundering. Yeah, that's right. So... So um, people like uh, uh, Paddy Malone from the Communist Party and, and other active communists, um, after the Second World War, they all returned. And some of those boys, they fought in every theatre of the war. I mean, they were hard men. Weren't afraid of a few gangsters. No. So they, they organised. It took a long while, many, many cases, but they threw them out. And then um, coming from the late 50s into the 60s, they really began to organise in earnest. And... Um, uh, so what was your question again? That was on... Oh, we're just following the BLF through, yeah, so... Yeah. All right. So yeah. then in that time, so from your late 50s through to um, the, uh, the, the, the mid-70s especially, around that time you saw, um, you know, you saw the building industry agreement put in place, you saw um, the questions of height and dirt and um, toxic dust and... Um, you know, uh, uh, OH&S, you saw that lock, locked in. You saw unions like the BLF, and, and the BLF often, depending on the state you're looking at, but generally speaking, they spearheaded a lot of this stuff. And it, they did it They did it through militant industrial action. Um, they did it using the 24-hour, where you would, you would just go home. If the boss became totally unreasonable on safety or... or, 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 or compo for an injured worker or whatever, you'd go home, you'd do your 24 hours home, you'd come back, if the boss refused to pay you for that 24 hours, you went home for the, another 24 hours. <laughs> and if they were, well then, you know, the bill's starting to mount up now. And that's how, in the end, that's how the OHS legislation came in, in 1984. Mm, it came in off the back of our homers. So was that legal at the time? Uh, well, uh, you know, like with most other things, legal is what you can get away with because you have the power to do it. Whether it's capital or labour, that's a fact of life. And we had the power. And uh, arguably, um, 
we're from 84, we've had some of the best legislation in the world governing OHS, but um, you've still got to have the muscle to enforce that on the ground. Now, yeah, you know yeah, that. well, that's interesting what you said there about both sides of capital and labour are pushing the boundaries because capital consistently and always pushes the boundaries of legality and they're always getting in trouble. Some of these big corporations have quite large budgets just to pay fines and things That's so right. that they can operate how they like. That's right, and we do the same stuff. You know, our side does the same stuff. But um, again, uh, it, it, it's it's really, I guess, the, the the end point. What is it you're aiming for? That's the, you, are we just aiming for uh, increased wages and that sort of stuff? Well, in which case, we're just applying the values of, of a capitalist system and there's an end game to that. The end game is, well... Um, uh, you know, if 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 uh, companies send industries overseas, um, they repatriate the jobs, they do all that. Well, we find, and then they introduce it at the home front. They introduce casualisation and contracting, sham contracting. I mean, between sham contracting and casualisation, now you're looking in the sixty percentile of work. So what's a what's a sham contract? So a sham cuts like ABNing. You know, you've got an ABN number, you're self-employed. You pay for everything yourself, mate. I'll give you the job, but all responsibility lies with you. Your holidays, your, you know, your sick pay, you know. And, and yeah, I, right. and so I, you're saying you're not employed, essentially. You're not employed. You're self-employed and you're contracting to me. And mm. then I can, I can end that contract, um, you know, in a, in a minute. So, mm. um, you know... You, but you still wind up doing all your work for that same person. That, that same... That... Per- well, you look at Telstra. Mm. You've thousands of people in Telstra, and they're all called self-employed. They've got to be available 7am to 7pm, seven days a week. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you're not, you're, you're not self-employed. <laughs> you are a worker, but you're working without rights. And, and that... Now, you know, it's that... It's that working without rights, that economy with no rights, which is what our third world brothers and sisters used to cop all the time. Now we've got first, second and third world in every country. And we're still copping it only mild here, but um, all around the world it is just a fallacy to say that neoliberalism has lifted people out of poverty. Absolute nonsense. There are more people now living in poverty than there were when the world was divided into first, second and third world. Yeah, right. So you've, you've got this thing, the gang, gangsters have been booted out and there's a bunch of tough, communist-minded, socialist, anarchist people in charge of a whole bunch of... Well, in charge or influencing, at least, a, a yeah. large union. Yeah. So what happened? Did they stick in stick within the capitalist scope like they were supposed no, to? Well, or did they, well, did no, they, they challenged. look a little further afield? Yeah, no, well, they challenged. And, and, and things like... Um, um, Policies like um, permanency, permanency for builders' labour, 52 weeks work a year. Um, uh, permanency um, uh, facilities, basically colleges, where when you're unemployed, you, you had a number, you'd go in, you'd hang your number up. This was the stuff we were fighting for, we were aiming at. The policies were in place in the union, funds were being raised towards that end. You'd go in, you'd hang your number up. And you could do training in there for the industry, you could do training for university if you wanted and and then when your number when your turn came up you'd be on the job so it's basically union hall hire was what we were aiming at um policies like limited tenure of office where um for a little while in our union there was agreement on these things and limited tenure of office would be where you served two terms you were back on the job um 
you know, and then the green bands. And so the big one was the green bands. Well, not just symbolically, but in very real terms, because by the end of the, um, you know, by, by, the, by the, well, the mid to late 70s, there were $3,000 million worth of building materials held up in green bands. That's a lot of money now, but back then that was whole countries, you know. So, so uh, we better just, just take a step back. Yeah. What is a green band? Okay, so a green band is when uh, you and me, we, we, we're, uh, uh, we go, our next job is going to be to go and knock that parkland down and build a Scotty's Tissue Factory, which was the first green band in Australia here in Melbourne. It wasn't Kelly's Bush in New South Wales. But as Jack always says, Jack Money always says yes, but it was called the Black Band, and he's right. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly's Bush for the first time it's called the Green Band. But that happened just down here in Carlton. Carlton was a very different place back then. And there's a whole stretch of parkland that the kids from the flats used to go and play in. And the residents, a couple of the residents worked in the building industry and they approached Norm Gallagher and said, look, it's going to destroy us. The kids are going to have nowhere to go. Normie went down, had a look with Mick Lewis, one of the organisers. Normie did 13 days jail over that and Mick did seven days jail. And they were both bashed and harassed. Um, that was the first, you know ban in the modern era that we know of as a sort of like an environmental social justice ban. It wasn't to do with the job, it was to do with... The results of the job. The yeah. results of the job it was to do with our relationships with the communities we lived in. And, and most importantly, it was about the employer prerogative. So you look at all the blues from the 1890s depression right through. The blues, the blues, the big ones, were always around prerogative who had the right to make the decisions. So the Green Bands made it very clear that we believed we were the ones that, you know, because capital, again, incapable, incapable. If it's got a chance to make an investment, get a return on it, that's what it's there to do. So expecting that to have a, a social conscience or it, it's not there, it's not designed for it. It's not feasible, yeah. yeah. That's right. So, you know, it's it's, it's like um, a, a double-edged weapon. It's, there's only one purpose for it. So. You know, we, on the other hand, have a different set of vested interest, and that, that, that is around rights, and, and it is around, you know, environmentally, it's around clean water, clean air, healthy soil, good forests, now, and now um, turning back the climate wars. So, so the Green Bands was all about that, and around climate now, it's, it's becoming a thing again, because, well, take the Vic market down the road. In 1971, the Green Band was put on the Victoria market. It saved the market. Um, in, in the 1990s, the, that band was reinvigorated again by, well, actually by John Cummins. I've got him on my T-shirt here. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, um, as Cummins said, as far as I'm concerned, the band was never lifted. That's what he said to the, the storeholders and traders. I was, I was there at the time when that ha happened. So, you know... Um, uh, that again was saying to the employers, "You're not going to decide. The majority will decide what happens. You know, not not you people who are just who are merely driven by the need for profit. Yes, the adjunct to that is we get jobs, but let's be clear on your motives. Your motive is for you to make a quid, and and uh, that can't be done at the expense of the people. So it it challenged capital. It challenged the the, the capitalist prerogative." To determine what happens on a job, whether the job went ahead, how it went ahead, what it made, the, the way it made it, um, all those things uh, it, were challenged. So really changing the balance of power back to the community. That's right. Mm. And doing that within the economy. 
And how did the community respond to that? Did they get behind the bosses and cheer them on? Oh, the, the, they, the, the people's response to the Green Bands historically has just been, just been fantastic. You know, to, to, to know that, um, you know, when you're in strife, you can, you can go to a union, you might not even be a member of it, but you can go there and you can explain, the union will listen and they'll come out and act with you, alongside you. you. You've got to step up first, but you do that and you'll find there'll be a helping hand at your back. Um, that's what people are after. That's what people want. They want it from their politicians, they want it from their schools, their universities, they want it from their public institutions. And, well, with the rollout of neoliberalism, we've been seeing it less and less and less that any of those institutional, you know, stru- uh, frameworks that we live within uh, uh, just becoming less able to do that. Yes, yes. I mean, I've, I've heard a reframing of neoliberalism lately as corporate libertarianism. Mm, mm. And I think it's probably more accurate. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. It's, it's that bullshit about... Um, you know, uh, the well, greed is good, isn't it? It's that thing about um, you get these uh, Uber people who, because they strive and they get out there and they drive in front and they do it hard, then they pull the rest of us along behind them. Yeah, what a lot of nonsense. How did that person go over it again? How did they clothe themselves? How do they push ahead? They're using a vehicle? Well, we made it. Um, everything came out of the collective and everything goes back into the collective. Um, that's, that's how you, it, that's how you yeah. defend individuals and, and, and you know it's it's by healthy collectives so yeah yeah I guess there's, there's two primary sources of wealth and it's people and nature and because people are nature it's just one really that's right that's right well yeah. even, even Marx you know who was on about developing the, uh, the productive forces to the maximum and all that he said um, you know before before labour comes nature mm. and labour is only a force of nature he said so we got we break that. Yeah. <laughs> it's better get real good at yoga and learn how to bend over and kiss your ass. <laughs> <laughs> now some of the other things that the BLF was uh, was looking at back in the day was it was um, I guess the slavery sort of situation in South Africa. Yes. What what, uh, yes. what sort of role could a, a little union in Australia have on on the situation halfway around the world? Well. Uh, a, a major role. I mean, uh, 1971 with the Springbok tour. Um, I still remember it. Had a little hole in my head from a police baton, a horse baton, and, <laughs> and you know, to have a, a a union of for me then as a boy, um, older men who really, I mean, they knew why they were on this planet, and and they gave you the opportunity to stand with them, and 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 to hear their stories. That was life changing, you know, and. And to, to stand up to Springbok tours, to, 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 you know, support Indigenous, to... So to, Springbok's a deer, isn't it? Yeah, and the spring, so that, that when... Yes. The, what, what was the a Springbok tour? So like Springboks is when they send a team over, they were Springboks, like like our people are, you know, Socceroos or... or oh, yeah, yeah, right. So this is a, a sports a rug, tour. Rugby, rugby tour. Rugby union tour. Yeah, rugby yep. cricket. Uh-huh. I remember, like, uh, Bobby Pringle, uh, uh, Bobby's dead now, but... He um, he sawed down the, the goalposts at the. You know, <laughs> <laughs> That'll stop the game. Yeah, yeah, they didn't quite know where to kick, but um, you know, uh, uh, people people putting their bodies on the line, literally, and and standing up for brothers and sisters uh, overseas. You know, Mandela, one of the first groups that he thanked was the Australian Labor Movement um, when he when he when he got out after twenty seven years in the slot, uh, called a terrorist for his freedom fighting activities and 
you know, um, Northern Ireland, Palestine, uh, Vietnam, of course, which is the one that, you know, my generation came out of because, you know, we, the more we found out about the war and we, we had family in the war. My brother was in the army. Um, the more we found out, the more we realised we were on the wrong side. You know, we, we were not consistent with the anti-fascist struggles of our parents. We were actually supporting the colonial and fascist powers. And so we rebelled against that. Well, to run into a whole union full of men who, who understood that, you know, they understood that what you were doing was right. And they put an arm around you and, and, and you know, you, comp, you felt 10 foot tall and bulletproof. You know? <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was, yes, those social and progressive things, you know, in, 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 in um, uh, not, not always. I mean, we had big, like, I got a, a relatively serious slapping at, at a BLF meeting over gay rights in 1973. Um, but uh, in Sydney, the, the workers there went on strike to defend the, the rights of a gay um, lecturer. At at, at uh, one of the unis there, you know. So uh, and the worms, the worm turns. People, people's notion of rights evolves and expands, like everything else. And uh, um, but yeah, no, our union had a very proud record of of social movement unionism. So the green bands were part of that. Um, and you know that really is at the end of the day, it's about economic democracy. It's about you know, solidarity doesn't end at the gate, um, uh, you know, or the door of the classroom or, or the university, you know, or uh, uh, where, you, where you get off your train. Or It's all through, it's all through the fabric of the way you live. And, and any laws that get in the way of the free flow of that, that solidarity within that fabric are bad laws and they need to be broken. Yeah. Yep. So what else was uh, what else was going on with the VLF? Oh, there was well, well, fingers in all sorts of pies. Yeah. Well, and the all of the good things we did all also led to our weak, like or illustrated our weakness. Right. Mm-hmm. So so um, because what we allowed to happen was, um, or what our leaderships allowed to happen was a confusion over who our enemies were and who our friends were. And the minute, the minute you're not clear on that, you're in strife. And when, when the various communist organisations fell out and allowed a situation to develop where workers in unions were used against each other, that's when employers and the state colluded and, and smashed us. So there was a breakdown in solidarity within the movement, which was exploited by the other side. Absolutely. So you had you had forty five DNE from nineteen seventy seven, but during the seventies and then into the eighties, we were at war with each other. And the the, the, the lesson was, was some of us as children, relatively, were saying, "No, don't do this. We're going to bite us on the bum. This will come back." And and sure enough, it did. Um, but and and. Those kids, you know, my generation, I mean, such as we were, because we were full of it, but we were right about some things. Because, you know, it wasn't coming out of a vacuum. We'd come out of Vietnam. We'd come out of that whole thing. We'd had to, at a pretty young age, work out who we were, like in a way that normally 18-year-olds aren't going to have to work that out. And and that meant, you know, your family split down the middle, didn't talk to each other for years, and thousands were in that position. So... Yes, we were young and we and we knew jack shit compared to these old older men. But 
we were right about some of that stuff, and 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 um, sometimes you, you wish you weren't, you know, <laughs> you wish it hadn't happened, but it did happen. We we you know we saw our own people turn on each other. Um, that created an opportunity and assisted in the rollout of the neoliberal uh, economics. Mm. And, um, and, 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 you know, so the big lessons there, um, uh, again, be very, very clear on who your friends are and who your enemies are. When it comes to your friends, sometimes your friends make mistakes, but don't stop being friends. Like, build that into the friendship from day one. Build that in, that we can disagree, but we're still brothers. Nothing's going to break that, that iron ring. Um, these are the lessons, and it, it's got to be built into the structure of the organisations. You've got to have oversight committees that can deal with stresses that individuals feel they can't cope with. You've got to have limited tenure. We've got to have a, an anti-bureaucratic measure that, that doesn't leave people there too long so they, at the end of the day, they're only human. They begin to feel like they own the structure that they are within. Um, not that they were put there democratically through that structure. They are actually the structure. You know, it's a Napoleonic urge. And, and you've got to have a capacity in the movement to, to um, uh, not set people up for failure like that. I think the danger is also that um, more of a, a monopolisation, not a deliberate one, but a, a factual one where one person who's been in a, a position of control for long enough mm. just has that corporate knowledge, it has the knowledge all in their head and if they were to get hit by a bus or to go a little bit funny with power then nobody else knows how to do that work yeah exactly right yeah so exactly right and you know that again talks to the the um having the strong delegate structures where people can step up at a moment's notice into organizing organizers can step up into official positions of you know your presidents and your uh, assistant President, your vice presidents and your assistant secretaries and secretaries. So you've got a second and a third rank leadership coming through all the time. Um, I've seen the Electrical Trade Union in Victoria do that pretty well. Like, you know, um, uh, Maritime Union in, in Western Australia and, and they're out of their national office in New South Wales, they do it very, very well and constantly looking for the ones who want to make a life of this movement um, and, and then giving them the training they need in order to be able to step up into, into new roles. And that's the sort of culture we need to, you know, inhabit our movement again. As this Change the Rules campaign develops over the years ahead now, it's it's the changes in the rules we live by also that have to have to change. We, we've got to set the pace. Um, we can't have older, more corporate, you know, um, uh, structures in place that, that, that actually reflect capitalism back to itself. Which is how it happened, right? You know, you've got a corporate structure. So in the end, all of, all of us, we start thinking, well, you know, that that um, CEO wants to talk to a secretary and, you know, yeah, someone under them, it's fine if we send an assistant or someone under that is fine if an organiser. We've got to get rid of these, you know, these sort of things. That, that, that's, that's the old... Um, uh, old hierarchies dependent upon a on, upon a capitalist framework, and mm. we're better than that. We're bigger than that, and and we're more confident than that. So we, you know, I think it, yeah, our rules are as important to change as the rules that must change that the state enforces. Absolutely. So the the BLF eventually was uh, 
was made illegal, is that right? Yes, we were de-recognised, we were de-registered and de-recognised. And uh, so we were outlawed. Every six months the police would check a union ticket on the gate. If you had a BLF ticket, you were sacked. You had to have the yellow union ticket, the Building Workers Industrial Union. Now, the Building Workers Industrial Union and the BLF eventually ended up in the same union. You know, the, as I said before, the worm does turn. The, 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 the key is working through the pain and recognising that we are not each other's problem. And where there are problems, they are merely a means to improve. Mm. That's all they ever are. So another, another legacy of the, um, the BLF is the, uh, the earthworker movement. Is that sort of yeah, one well, thing flowing into the other? Yeah, the, the, the Green Bands um, uh, and, and campaigns like the Bluey's Boots and Overalls campaign. So when we ran that, the Bluey company in Tasmania was nearly broke. And um, out of our campaign to, um, uh, uh, to get that warm winter coat, um, the Bluey company became a multinational and we no longer own it. So there are a few lessons in that, you know, um, and, and uh, uh, we learnt, though, that if we use our social weight as unionists, we're not just there in, involved in boxing on about getting more money and better conditions, but we use our social weight in a different and creative way. We can cause the entire economy to take a direction it wouldn't have otherwise taken. And the Bluey Boots and Overalls campaign, that sort of sunk into our younger heads and we thought, Gee, what happened there? You know, that's interesting. We didn't set out to do that, but look what happened. And then all of the jobs that resulted out of that, all of the jobs that resulted out of the green bands, that the rocks and Woolloomooloo, and not the jobs we, we, you know, that might have been ours as building workers, but, um, uh, but, but good, honest jobs. So um, with Earthworker, that was the same thinking. We just said, well, look, um, capitalism's too constrained. It's too inflexible. It's, it's, it, it can't operate outside of that, that, that profit-driven um, factor. We, we, on the other hand, we have a different set of vested interests, as we said before. So what, what does an economy that, based on our vested interests, begin to look like? Well, it looks like um, a, a thing where, instead of working for an employer, the workers are their own employer, that we are worker owners. It's a socialisation of the wage. So it's a social wage where we don't just look for a monetary return where you and I then go out and individually transact in order to meet our family's needs. You and I collectivise our wealth and we, we take care of housing together, we take care of health together. Anything that the state or individual capitalists put on us, we deal with collectively. Um, when we, as I said before, when we want to put batteries in, we don't just say, all right, I'll buy a battery for my house. No, we get together, the three of us, and we'll say, right, we're going to we're going to buy a, a twenty thousand dollar battery, and we're going to put that into collective storage. Doesn't need to be at our house, so long as we've got photovoltaics that are pumping power into the grid, we can calculate what that power is. And so long as our battery's over here, the collective storage, the same amount is put into the battery. And then, when the grid really needs that power in the middle of your, whenever the most expensive part of the day, that's when bang, our power gets sucked out of our batteries, and then we go back through it all again. That way, you know, we are responding to problems that capitalism has created using the values that we've chosen to live by. And yeah. that's, the, that's what Earthworker is about. Um, the, you know, the idea of the red gum co-op, so the service sector co-ops, um, they're a little bit easier to set up because we're 80% service sector in this economy, which is really dangerous from an economic point of view. 
very, very quickly, we could collapse. Greece was at 60% service sector before it collapsed. We're in now in about the mid 80 percentile. Like that's that's like you know, being drunk and walking on a cliff edge. So <laughs> so yeah, we're 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 in strife now. Um, to get how do we build quick enough to deal with the climate emergency and that sort of you know market collapse that capitalism is causing? Um, well, we've got to we've got to um, do what happened this time consciously aware about what happened with the blues, boots and overalls. We've got to put the economic models in place that operate off a different basis. They operate off a, 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 not, a, not just a perceived need because some advertising company says you need it, but actual need. The actual needs we have and to make jobs out of those. So we, we have a need for the green transport grid and the green water grid and the green power grid and there are thousands of jobs around it and, and even jobs in the manufacturing component in all of that. Um, getting the socialised capital in behind it, super and credit co-ops and cooperative banks in behind that sector. At the moment, there's not much of a sector there that they can get behind. There is in agriculture and finance, but not in the jobs that people like, or, you know, a lot of us do. So it's it's building that stuff in and and modelling that to getting the small steps done well so people can see it works, nothing to fear. There's no big grey state that's going to step in and make them believe things they don't want to believe in. Believe what the hell you want to believe. You can read what you want to read. You can sing the songs you love. The thing is, when we meet our needs, when we do economics, we do it together and it's democratic. Nice one. Well, Dave Kerrin, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you. Thanks, comrade. <laughs>